Welcome to the Probate Podcast, where we talk about all the things you didn't know you need to know about probate. My name is Sherry Lund, and I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to understand the process and to know what to expect because it's going to make things easier and it's going to save you money. And I'm here to show you how. Hi there, this is Sherry Lund, and I'm back with another episode of the Probate Podcast. This is part two, a continuation of my episode from last week. It was so good that we wanted to continue the conversation, and so we've broken it up. Take out your pens, take out your notebooks, because boy, oh boy, do we talk about some good things today, especially if you're an executor, if you're going through probate, this is a must-attend podcast. We left off last week talking about the implications of hiring the wrong probate attorney. Let's shift gears to real estate and how you can navigate the sale of an inherited property on your own or with the help of a real estate agent. Most of the other agents in my market that don't do probate don't even think about liability. They don't understand the personal representative's deed. They don't understand the as-is addendum. They don't understand the waiver of liability. They don't understand why it's important to the estate. They don't understand how handling liens for an estate is different than handling liens for an individual. They just think it's all the same. Oh yeah, I know how to do a deed. I know how to do uh, how to handle a lead. In probate, the way you handle those things could really have a big impact on the outcome of your case, the liability for you as the personal representative and the estate. And it also can have a huge impact on how much money you have in funds left to distribute at the end. Your friend who is a realtor, your family member who's a realtor can really cost you a lot of money in delays and mistakes and especially in liability. Can a realtor come and list a probate house without knowing anything about the probate process? Yes, absolutely happens all the time. But can they also make really costly mistakes that back and bite you? Oh yeah, that happens all the time too. A lot of people get lucky and it's not a problem, but for the people where it becomes a problem, sometimes it's really hard to untangle some of those situations. And then last is really, if you do it yourself and you're going to sell as is to a wholesaler, you know, to a cash investor, because you got 50 letters in the mail and you called 10 and you weeded it out to the best three, what you really have to be careful of in our industry, there are people called wholesalers. Some are good, some are not. But their objective is not to buy your house. Their objective is to get your house under contract so that they can sell the contract to somebody else. They don't have the cash. They don't have the team. They don't have any of it. And what's really sad is a lot of times they make some of the best offers because they know they're not going to buy the house. They just want to get it tied up. And so they'll come out there. They'll be the best offer out of all five or 10 offers that you received. You're really excited. Everybody's happy. They'll put little things in the contract. They'll want to call out that it's an assignable contract. They put down almost no earnest money because they don't want to lose it. And then they ask for really long inspection periods so that they can bring all of their friends through and try to sell them the house. Those are three ways you can spot them. And then what happens is at the end of the inspection period, if they could not get anybody to buy the house at the price that they offered, then they just say, oh, I'm really sorry. We can't do the deal. And as a personal representative, you're all the way back at square one all over again. And a lot of people don't know that exists. Some states are trying to outlaw that practice. I am not saying that all wholesalers are bad, but what I am saying is if you work with someone like me who has vetted all of those people, I know who the investors in my market are that have the cash. I can get them in front of you right away if a cash offers what you want. And I can save you all kinds of headache because when I bring a cash buyer to you, 
I know they're going to close in two weeks. I know they have the money to do the deal. And I know that they are compassionate, caring investors who are going to look out for you as well. But if you go it alone, which is what I did in 2018, I had two different offers fall through on the house. And the first one, my attorney warned me about it too. My attorney said, this is the best non-offer I've ever seen. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, but it's the highest one. And it's a lot higher than all the others. We got to go with this. Well, then a month later, I found out, oh no, the attorney was right. This wasn't an offer. They were just tying me up. Yeah. And you get excited, right? I mean, you you thought we're going to close on the house. We're getting closer to closing the probate. I mean, like that's a big part of freeing up the funds and taking a huge thing off of your plate. Yeah. And then days before closing, you find out not only are they backing out, but you've got like $10 or whatever for an auction. Yeah. Yeah. They Oh, and so then you feel betrayed. You feel like somebody's taking advantage of you and to have it done twice. That's super sad. Well, the second time we didn't get as far. So the first time I accepted the offer and the deal fell through. And then the second time I was watching. So I we didn't go all the way through the inspection period the second time. I just went back and said, hey, I want to see your proof of funds. And I want to make sure that, you know, this is not an assignable contract. I want right. to make sure you have proof of funds and I want to shorten up your inspection period. And then they're like, well, why would you want to do that? Yeah. Because I want yeah. to sell the house. <laughs> yeah. You start to see who has the seller's best interest at heart. And it's, yeah, it's not, it's generally not the wholesaler, right? There, and again, there are some really good yeah. ones out there. There yeah. are, but, but why work with the wholesaler if you can get directly to the cash buyer? Because the wholesaler is just taking a percentage off the top, you know, and that's the other thing. So you get the, clients that'll be attracted to the wholesaler because they advertise that you don't pay any realtor fees. Well, the fee that they charge for the contract is a lot of times more than what you would pay a agent anyway. That's true. And that's money that's coming out of your pocket when you could work with an agent like me. And I also should mention, I have deals set up with my buyers so that when they work with me, they pay my commission. So we talked about a zero commission not only do I have the best cash buyers, but they'll give you the same offer they would, whether I'm involved or not, and they will pay my commission for bringing them a deal because we have a relationship and we do a lot right. of things together. So yeah, you should bypass that situation. You can bypass that situation, but I can save my clients a lot of time and just avoid it altogether. Can you talk about the lowball offers? And I know that there some people get offended when investors give them lowball offers. Can you talk about both sides of that coin? Yep, I certainly can. So I know, you know, as a seller or as a realtor, we refer to them as lowball offers. Being on the other side of that, working with investors and working as a personal representative, I realize how they come up with those lowball offers. For the good investors, there is a formula. And what's happening in that situation is the investor is assuming the risk of buying the property as is. They need to make repairs. So they, the really good ones, they have a formula that they work with. And they start with what they call the after repair value, which is what they think the house will sell for when it's completely fixed up. And then in a lot of cases, they work their formula on average, depending on the condition of the house, you're usually about 60 to 70% of the after repair value if you're selling to an investor. And you're usually coming in at 80 to 90% of the after repair value if you sell to a landlord. And then if you go with an iBuyer, like Open Door or somebody like that, you're usually around 85 to 90% of the ARV. And if you work with a realtor like me, we can get you to 100%. But my best kept secret is that I can put more money in your pocket, even if we sell at a lower price. And that, that's a whole other thing. 
So the lowball offer rule of thumb that I give to my families is go on Zillow, look at the estimate, and then just multiply it times 80% or 70%. That's where most of your lowball cash offers are going to come in at. If that's a number that you can work with because of your particular situation and you're working with a legitimate investor who can close in two weeks, that might be a good situation for you. Mm-hmm. But that's, they're mm-hmm. not doing that just to insult you. Right. They really do have a formula. Now, there are other lowball offers that'll come in from less seasoned investors who just put as many offers out there as they can, hoping to catch one at 60% of the after repair value. And those, you know, those are really low and maybe they don't put as much thought into those. And if they land one, they'll buy it. But typically there is some logic to the number that's involved with those lowball offers. If you don't want everybody offering you $200,000 for your $300,000 house, then you really should call someone like you or me because we can help you avoid that situation. But if you just start responding to all those letters you get in the mail, they're almost all going to come in at about 70% of ARV Mm -hmm. almost every single time. And if there's foundation issues or painting that needs to be done or siding that needs to be repaired, that would even come lower than the 70%. Just to give people an idea of what really is a lowball offer or what is standard practices for people that are carrying that risk. Yeah. And that's a really good point that you bring up because when you're the person selling the house and first thing a lot of these people do is they go to Zillow and they say, well, Zillow says my house is worth 300,000. Well, Zillow... That's an estimate. Zillow doesn't know the condition of your house or all the work it needs to be done to get the Uh 300,000. But whatever that number is, your cash investor is still going to come in lower than that because they're assuming risk. They need to hire the crews, buy the materials, make the repairs. They have their holding costs and they have the cost to resell the property. And all of those, you know, they put all of those things into their formula. And so my 70% rule is not hard and fast, but if you plug that number in and you're like really offended at how low it is, then don't call the cash buyers. Right. Yeah. That's what they have to do in order to bring it up to resale value for sure. What would be the benefit of a family to take a low ball? Like why would some families take what some people might call a low ball offer and the neighbors might not appreciate the value that is being sold for, but what's in it for the seller? Why would they not Yep. Want to list it on the MLS or whatever. Well, sure. It's funny you ask that. In my probate case, I did take a lowball offer or what we're considering a lowball offer from an investor. And the reason I did it is because the house had been built in the 1800s. It was in complete disrepair. My dad did not keep up with his permits. I mean, he made a lot of repairs, but he didn't keep up with his permits. The house was not going to pass the truth in the sale of housing inspection. There would have just been so much work that we had to do. And then my attorney was concerned about the liability of putting it on the MLS. And to be honest with you, back then, we were even wondering if the house might get condemned if we put it on the MLS. Now I know that a lot of those were just fears that I had, but I didn't know that back then. So when people started showing up saying, hey, we'll give you $100,000 for a house that I thought I might not get anything for, and I could be done in two weeks, I'm like, wow, that's awesome. And I don't even have to clean it out and I can leave all this other stuff. And then you get the other people in the family that are like, oh, that offer's way too low. We could do a yard sale and sell the personal property. And then we can have the whole family come over and paint and we can get more than that. And it's like, even if that's true, 
I don't have the time or the energy to stretch this thing out for another six months. Right. So that cash offer sounded pretty good because when you take that cash offer, that whole problem goes away. And that was really appealing with all the things we had on our plate. The other thing was once we got past the wholesalers and we found a buyer, each time we went through the process, we got better at vetting those offers. And so we ended up picking a cash buyer who actually kind of reminded us of our dad. And he was just starting out his business and he seemed to have integrity and we trusted him. And he shared his vision for how he was going to repair and restore the house. We just really liked his approach. And so we sold him the house and he still let us come through and tour through the house as they were doing the repairs. Oh, nice. And he asked my mom what color she wanted the siding to be on the house. Like he kept us involved in the process. And, uh, and after he made all the repairs and fixed it up, the house looked better than it ever looked ever. It became one of the nicest homes in the neighborhood. He sold it for a really nice profit. And the new family's happy. He was happy. Everybody was happy. The only regret I had was that I didn't get to walk through it when it was on the MLS. It, it sold so fast that we missed our opportunity to go through Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. What a good story. Yeah. Now there are still people in the family that we should have kept it. We should have kept it. We sh- and I'm like, I didn't have the capacity to take that on. I was just trying to figure out how we were going to get through court and wrap this up and keep taking my kids to piano, soccer, and all the other things. Like I just didn't have the energy to put into that house. And I believe that the house, the legacy now is better than what I could have done with it at that time, for sure. And that was a cash offer. That's a really good point. The emotional decision to stay with something because of what could have been or what was is still a ball and chain that's tying you to the past. Yeah. And it doesn't fit your current situation or your vision for what life you're creating. And obviously it didn't for the other people in the family either. I mean, why should you be the one to take on that responsibility and then have it continue to deteriorate or whatever? It's awesome that it turned out the way that it did. And the other thing that I thought of when you were talking was the concept of missed opportunities, Mm -hmm. you know, lost opportunities. So when you had a buyer come along and say, we can do this for you in two weeks, or even if it's a traditional buyer and it takes six weeks, Yep. there's still light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, that's still pretty fun to think about getting that big weight off of your shoulders. And then you're not missing the softball games. You're not like you're still able to tend to all of those things. Yeah, because it, it really is a balance, right? You didn't ask to be personal representative in a lot of cases. Some people do. But I was like, I didn't ask for that job. I didn't want that job. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. And the last thing I want to do is string it out. You know, it's already taken too long. I don't want to do this for another six months or a year. Right. Since you have been an executor, you know, it's interesting to have your perspective. I mean, you've also been the special agent to have that perspective and you've got enough distance between you and that incident. It's not as raw for you as it would be to talk to someone who is maybe in that situation now or freshly out of it. But can we talk a little bit about the family? And we do feel pressure from relatives and people that think they know what we should be doing or whatever, but it really is the executor's call. It's not a democracy. It is that person's call. And how do they deal with that? How how were you able to manage that? And how were you able to draw those boundaries and Mm -hmm. say, thank you for your input, but this is what I need to do? So I did have that challenge. I don't think that was unique to our situation. I see it in a lot of other families too, but at the time I didn't realize that. 
And I did everything I could to keep communication open and to try to be fair. I had a really good attorney who also was focused on more than just the transaction. So my attorney knew that it was really important for me to try to preserve the relationships in my family. And so sometimes when we were dealing with issues, he would give me advice with that goal in mind, right? You know, you could just go ahead and do this without talking to your sister and your cousins, but we also could just write up a little summary so they know where we're at and maybe that'll be enough. You know, maybe that's all they really need. And mm -hmm. so there were a couple of times where my attorney walked me off the ledge and did some really, just really simple things that I would not have thought of, but seemed to keep the rest of the family at peace. There were probably a couple of times where I was ready to just say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'll just let someone else in the family take over. And he's like, no, that would not be good. Here's why we're almost done and all this. I really trusted my attorney and he really kept me focused when I needed it. And more than just legal, he was really good. So I really appreciated that. And then in other families that are going through this similar situation, I try to share that same advice with them now. Sometimes I'll just ask them, you know, you're authorized by the court to make this decision. Do you want to just do that? Or do you want to get input from your family? Do you want to try to keep peace? Or they'll say, well, my brother wants to buy the house or whatever. It's like, okay, so let's get some offers coming in. And then if you want to give your brother an opportunity to match meat or whatever, he can. And if he decides he doesn't want that option, then we still have other offers we can fall back on. We talked earlier about working with the family. That's one of the reasons why it's really important, I think, to work with the family, because it's not just about selling the house. It might be about preserving the relationships or, or trying to do what the deceased person wanted. There's so many different factors that come into play, but getting through probates, not just cleaning out the house, selling a house, signing right. documents and being done. There's more to it than that. Yeah. And I really think that we can help them by working with the families, coming alongside, supporting the personal representative. I think they can come out better on the other side and and with that support and knowing that they did the hard thing and, you know, they felt the support from us and from others. Yeah. Can you talk about the expense of probate? Is it really worth paying an attorney? Is it really worth paying somebody like us to help them close it out? Yes. So I did have one family that I was working with and this, this person was really young. I mean, we're talking like college, never owned a house, never sold mm -hmm. a house. And the mom passed away and this person was the personal representative and was trying to figure out how to sell the house. They had a family dynamic that I hadn't really come across before, but it, it was the reality of his situation. So one of the things I did for him is every time I was going to do something that I wanted to explain to him, I would put it in a YouTube video. And then I made it private and I sent the link to everybody in the family so that they would all hear the same thing and they would all see the same thing and they could go back and watch it as many times as they wanted. And when we finished that case, two different people in the family told me that if it had not been for those YouTube videos, their family would have never made it through probate. So that, you know, I was able to explain to them why we should go with the approach we were taking for putting the house on MLS as is versus taking the cash offer. I walked through the net sheets with them. I went through the listing and showed them what was going on. Everything I did, I put it on video, the contract, everything. And I got so many views from their family that it started boosting my YouTube algorithm. <laughs> and then I started getting these messages. Hey, you should do more videos like this. All right. So I digress. The expense of hiring someone to help. What I like to tell people is if you really think you can do it and you're feeling good and you have experience or whatever reason, go for it and just reach out for help when you need it.
But if the only reason you're not getting help is because you think you can't afford it or you're trying to save money, you might be putting yourself at a disadvantage. I have another client that I work with who wanted to do everything pro se. And I kept telling him, you need to do X, Y, and Z. He kept saying, no, I'm going to, I'm going to wait till the end. And then I'm going to hire an attorney and wrap everything. Well, anyways, he got to the end and then now the attorney wants to go back and redo all the things that I told him we were going to need to do. And he's really upset because it's going to cost a lot more than he thought. Like, yeah, that happens. That happens sometimes. Yeah. Earlier, I said, you don't know what you don't know. And so it looks easy if you're not the executor. It looks easy looking in and saying, just do this. And, you know, I'll make the decision to go through probate or not. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And then what we haven't talked about is that part of the weight of being the personal representative is that you're liable for how things come out and how the estate is taken care of and how the assets are distributed and that's a big deal. It is. Yeah. It's more than, again, it's more than just filling out a couple of forms. And when I'm working with pro se people, a pro se is when someone is, goes through probate in Minnesota without an attorney. So when I'm working with them, one of the first things they always ask me is, can I look at your forms? Do you have some forms I can look at? How do I fill out this form? And they call the clerk and the clerk says, I can't give you legal advice. I say the same thing. I can't give you legal advice. And then they're stuck. Like sometimes on the first form, they're stuck. And it's like, whoa, if you can't make it past the first form, you might need some legal help. Yeah. (laughs) Do your family a favor and you will spend some money when you hire an attorney. But how much would you have spent had you not had the attorney and have to go back and clean everything up? Well, we have gone over time and we need to talk about how people can reach you, Rain. How can they find you? Where can they find you? The best place to reach me is through email and we'll put that email address in the show notes. Sure. And then if you want to engage with me other than email, the best place is through the Facebook group we have. It's called Minnesota Probate Support. And all the people that I've mentioned in my network, I have people that do online auctions. I have people that do clean out. We have some attorneys in there that participate. If you want to engage with me and people in my network, even I think even a few investors are in there, if I'm not mistaken. Minnesota Probate Support on Facebook. Are you on LinkedIn too? I am on LinkedIn. I don't get a lot of interaction through LinkedIn, but I am there if someone wants to find me there. But I, like I said, I'm old school. I don't have a really fancy website. I don't have a CRM that's going to send you emails and texts every week or like you just call me, I call you back. (laughs) We figure out if I can help you, if you need my help and then we go from there. Yeah. Any last words that you feel like you need to say to the listeners? Just uh, you're not alone. A lot of us have been through this. A lot of us continue to go through this. There are many people like Sherry and myself that are here to help you and just don't try to do it all yourself. You don't have to. Rain, thank you so much for your wisdom and for your examples and your stories. And especially thank you for what you're doing in the lives and families in Minnesota where you're serving. I appreciate what you're doing. And I know that they do too. You're making the world a better place. Well, thanks, Sherry. I appreciate it. And you as well. And I wish you the best of luck on the podcast and anything I can do to help promote it. Happy to do it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rain. All right. Thanks, Sherry. That's all I have for now. New episodes of the Probate Podcast will come out on Thursdays. I also have a free public support group called Houston Probate Support on Facebook. You don't have to live in the greater Houston area to be a member, but I'd love to have you join me there. I'd love to have you join me on any of these platforms, including this podcast. And I'll share the links of where you can find me in the show notes below. I'm looking forward to us connecting. See you next time. And remember, you matter.